be bold and be brave and just go for it. As photographers, we are always looking for powerful images that, that will hold time in place, that will draw people in and symbolize something universal, something shared, something emotional. Everybody needs to see what's going on everywhere. Pictures just stand out. This is how we remember. Insights, kits, and the conversations that matter with the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. Hello and welcome to Shutter Stories. My name is Ilvinia Kikchin. I'm a Canon ambassador and I'm your host. And today we'll be talking about wildlife photography. Wildlife is one of the most popular and rewarding genres in photography, and it's appealing to so many people from amateurs to professionals. But as I've learned while preparing for this episode, it's not without its challenges. In today's episode, we'll be talking with two photographers who work in different fields of wildlife photography. And we'll talk about the ethical considerations that they take into account while in the field. Selena Chen is a photographer, a conservationist and a TEDx speaker, and she's based in London. Her work has taken her all across the globe documenting issues such as endangered biodiversity in ever-shrinking habitats and the illegal wildlife trade. And our other guest is Chris Fellows. He's a Canon ambassador and a photographer from South Africa and one of the leading authorities on great white shark behavior. His images of a great white breaching at South Africa's seal islands are world famous. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, first off, let's find out a little bit about both of you. So, Chris, your work often focuses on sharks. Could you tell us a little bit about this area of photography? Yeah, Ilvia, I focus on a broad range of wildlife subjects. Predominantly, uh, I made my name initially with photographing sharks. But um, over the years, I've branched out as a fine art wildlife photographer to focusing essentially on iconic species. So animals like lions, elephants, sharks, whales, animals that really, you know, represent what most people think of when they, they think of the wild. And I think my primary drive for doing that is, is to drive home the fact that many of these iconic creatures are actually under threat. And, you know, certainly having worked with sharks for the last 30 years, I experienced firsthand virtually every single day um, the declines and decreases that we're seeing in these animals. So I use my work as a means of, of hopefully highlighting the magnificence of these animals, but also drawing attention to the fact that they, they need our help and they're in trouble. Yeah, they're really in trouble. I watched a few of your videos and I saw you talk about the same subject and that really made me realize how important it is to document these amazing animals. And Selena, your work focuses on conservation and protecting biodiversity. So I think you're kind of in the same boat. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you do this? Um, yeah, well, so I, I actually don't really call myself a, a wildlife photographer. I, I, I operate more in the like, environmental photojournalism sphere and space. Um, and I've always said, first and foremost, I'm a conservationist. And uh, ecology and photography are the mediums through which I have decided to, to tackle conservation. Um, and so I, very similar to Chris, you know, I, I use photography to photograph biodiversity that I think requires the attention and love that most people don't give it. And um, hoping to use 
visual storytelling to spark, you know, enthusiasm and joy in people and ultimately galvanize them to protect the natural world around them. Yeah, and this is a question for both of you. How do these two areas overlap? And Selena, do you maybe want to go first? Well, uh, the overlap of conservation and photography is almost entirely the, the space that I operate in exclusively. <laughs> um, I don't really do much uh, photography of wildlife that doesn't um, incorporate some sort of conservation message. And essentially, you know, photography is all about telling a story through images. And the story that I choose to tell is the story of conservation and environmental plight. I would also think that photography maybe is quite an easy way for the viewer to engage with these animals. Because when you look at wildlife photography, yeah, well, it really gives you a feeling um, that you're connected to these animals in some way. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's about, yeah, it's like this this idea of storytelling. And even if it's something as simple as showing non-human animals in almost equal light, showing them in this intimate sense and kind of destroying this idea of like anthropocentrism you know in how many how many situations can people look an animal in mm. the eye very very few and so photography allows this small window into a world that lots of people don't have the privilege or honor to experience and i think you know every single person has this intrinsic love and wonder for the natural world and there are just many many people who are so disassociated and so far away from it um, and if you can just kind of bring people back and remind them like look look at how beautiful the world is mm. and look at that there are creatures out there and you can see the life in their eyes in a photograph um, and just as that simple act can really touch people's hearts yeah that's beautiful and chris how do you think they overlap it's pretty hard to follow on um, after what Selena said because she echoes so many of my sentiments. Um, you know, I was first and foremost um, a naturalist, somebody who had the incredible privilege of of traveling throughout Southern Africa. And my my earliest memory of, of life is is wildlife, and it's always been my passion. Photography came as an extension of my of my passion, and um, like Selena so you know eloquently said that. We are incredibly privileged to do what we do, to be out there in the field, seeing these animals, experiencing them, getting to know them as individuals, getting to know them as equal life forms to, to all of us. And throughout my work as a photographer, if you look at a lot of my images, uh, I, I shoot a lot from very low angles. I try and connect with the eyes of my subject on the same level as, as they are. I don't like shooting down on, on any of my subjects if I can help it. And the reason for that is I see all forms of wildlife along the same levels and the, and the same footing as myself. I try and tell a, a balanced story of what's actually happening out there. I, I don't just shoot beautiful photos. I also mm -hmm. sadly tell what 30 years of working with sharks on a daily basis um, has shown me. You know, I was very lucky to discover some incredible behavior when I was a guy in my, my late teenage years of the flying great white sharks. And that really captured the attention of the world. And now 25 years later, which is the evolutionary blink of an eye, that behavior no longer exists. Wow, it went that quickly. Yeah. And if we can do that to an iconic species, can you imagine what we're doing to 
to animals that we don't even really pay attention to, to small creatures, to entire ecosystems. And, you know, that's why I think photography is incredibly important because it's a visual representation of our natural world that can be enjoyed. In the, in, in the case of sharks, if I take a photograph of a shark, tomorrow it can be enjoyed by a person sitting in a, in a landlocked country that they get an appreciation of a world they'll never see. And maybe the next time they go to a restaurant in their country, they think differently about ordering an endangered fish species. Or, hmm. I mean, the, the, the realm of possibilities when you take a photograph in terms of how you touch people is, is endless. And, you know, Selena, you know, said it so, so well that you establish a connection with your surroundings and you establish that connection by having exposure to it. And in that light, you know, photography goes a, a, a huge way to, to creating that, that association. Is it sometimes a bit depressing, I can imagine, um, that you see such a big difference in the shark's behavior or yeah. the things that you could photograph 25 years ago? It, it's a reality. It's a reality check. You know, those animals have been mine and my wife's life. It's, it's not just going out and photographing a shark. It's going out and photographing... Shy guy the shark, or Rasta the shark, or Cuz the shark. It's individual animals we, we've, we've come to know unbelievably well. We, we, we don't just see them as, as a generic sharks or lions or elephants. When you spend a huge amount of time with these animals, you, you, you realize they have personalities. They have individual characters. that They are just like us. They have uh, an ecological intelligence that is at least equal to our cognitive intelligence on, on so many levels. And you know, when those animals don't come back, it's, it's like losing a friend. Hmm. But by the same token, you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say it's all over. Um, and, and that's why I try, I've got a, a body of works called the 11th hour. And essentially, the first 11 images, if you can imagine 11 hours on a clock, the first 11 images are black and white images of some of the most iconic creatures on the planet and behaviors and experiences I've been lucky enough to see and photograph. And many of these are gone. They no longer exist in my short lifetime. And then the 12th image is of a magnificent bull elephant standing under, under a huge fig tree in Manipuls in northern Zimbabwe. And this still exists. This is still out there. There are these amazing things still on our planet. But the sands of time are running out for them. The 11th hour is nigh. We've lost a lot, but there's still a hell of a lot more we can do. And there's still amazing things out there that we can conserve. And there are so many incredibly dedicated individuals trying so hard, just like Selena's doing and so many others out there that are making a difference. We are winning certain battles and we need to keep fighting because so it's an ongoing battle. And it's, it's really a case of the world is moving in the right direction. Mm. The world is moving towards sustainability, a harmonious integration of resources. And, you know, if we can keep fighting a little bit longer, the tide is turning and we, we can have significant wins for wildlife. And most importantly, um, you know, we can reconnect people with the origins from which we all came. Where I'm sitting right now at the southern tip of Africa is less than 100 kilometers away where the origins of Homo sapiens came from. and you know, for me, it's a wake-up call. This is where we all started. This is the, the incredible landscape that they saw that had an abundance. And those people lived in harmony with their surroundings. And if we don't come in some way back to that balance, I think not, not only will we have lost something incredibly special on our planet, but 
I think we we perhaps heading in a direction of of very 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 serious trouble for ourselves too. That was beautifully said, and I, and I completely agree with his take home point of you know unless we can re restore this re relationship of reciprocity with the land because ultimately that's kind of where we've gotten so lost, we've completely lost our relationship with the land uh, and the creatures that we share it with, and it's understanding that it's we can. We can take in small amounts and sustainable amounts, but we can also give back. Um, and we can have these positive relationships with nature, yeah. just as Chris can recognize individual sharks and their personalities. And I find that so beautiful. And as yeah. somebody who's in like relatively new on the block, I've only been doing this for a couple of years, I'm, I'm almost jealous of that idea of the fact that he has the time and the ability and again, like the privilege and honor to spend so much time with individual animals and, and get to know them really on a, yeah, on a, on a one-to-one -one basis. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Selena, Chris was just talking about his project, the 11th hour. I was wondering if you have something similar, mm -hmm. any projects that you shot maybe one of your favorites or most exciting shoots that also sends out a message similar to what Chris was saying about the 11th hour? Well, I wouldn't call it a, a singular shoot, but a lot of my work focusing on the uh, illegal wildlife trade in East and Southeast Asia, you know, as someone who has East and Southeast Asian heritage, I found it really important for me to go back and try to tell that story from my perspective And from a perspective that holds empathy for both the wildlife and also the, the culture and the people. Uh, yes, so the, the project is kind of an ongoing one, but it's, it's more like single images of, of, of wildlife that can be found uh, in the illegal trade as in, for like medicinal purposes, but also for particularly animals found in captivity. Yeah, I saw a very sad image that you took of a primate uh, in a cage. It's an orangutan. Oh, wow. I could hardly recognize it. It's, it's yeah. so bald. I thought, yeah, I couldn't really see it was an orangutan. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's probably the, the photograph that I'm most proud of. It's a, it's a Bornean orangutan in a zoo. Um, and we don't really know, need to know where it was taken or the context, but you can see this, this individual as, you know, our cousin. <laughs> it looks so, so familiar and so close to us. I've, I've worked with orangutans in the wild, both Bornean and Sumatran orangutans. Um, and so seeing an orangutan in captivity, just the fact that it's in captivity doesn't sit right with me, but also how, it's, how common it is to severely mistreat wildlife in captivity for the purpose of human entertainment. So that photograph really kind of speaks to that issue and how it's both an animal welfare issue where we need to consider the, the welfare and well-being of an individual animal, but mm -hmm. also consider the implications that this has for the conservation of that entire species, which kind of summarizes a lot of the issues of the ethics of wildlife photography in one um, sentence. Yeah, there are a lot of ethical considerations. And I work as a photojournalist, which also comes with its own ethical considerations. But I had never thought there were so many in the wildlife photography world as well. So I'm very keen to learn how you guys work as photographers and keep the animal welfare in mind. 
I think the most important thing for me is when I go into the field is that I'm a visitor in their world. It's a privilege for me to be there. My actions can result in incredibly negative repercussions for them if I was to disturb an animal or interfere with it in a way that seriously altered the outcome of a feeding event, of um, it looking after its young, all sorts of different things. And, you know, as a photographer, you always are trying to get the best image. Yeah, you want to get close, right? Yeah, for my form of photography, I, I do like to get close to the animals. And I spend extreme amounts of time getting to know my subjects. And in 99% of, of cases, I allow the animals to come to me. So I'm not constantly pushing the animals. I allow them to build up a comfort that I'm not something threatening towards them and that they approach and approach me in a way that they're doing so on, on their terms. Obviously, there are a couple of, of different interactions where that, that doesn't necessarily happen. But by and large, that's the way I like to approach my work. And, and I, I always see photography as an extension of, of my love for animals, not my love for animals as an extension of, of my photography. And at the end of the day, for me, the biggest thing is that I have to look at the person in the mirror. In most of the places that I go to to photograph wildlife, I'm usually just with my wife. We're self-guided and nobody would know what I'd done. I could do pretty much what I'd liked. I could use all manner of means to get those photographs. But I, I have to look at that photograph hanging on my wall and I have to say to myself, well, you know what, you, you, you made that animal charge you or you chased that animal or you did something that that bird left its nest and it never came back. Nobody would know except I would know. And I think for me, that for me is, is the, the biggest thing in that I know what's wrong I have my standards and, and I need to, to respect the fact that I'm always a visitor in those animals' worlds. And, you know, for me, the, when the documentary is being made, we've got to be realistic in this world. And people such as myself or Selena or many others that have the privilege of going to uh, wild areas, we get to see these animals for ourselves. So we, we can't just portray everything in a natural history way. We can't just portray everything in a, in a purely blue chip or scientific way. There have to be some documentaries out there or photographs taken that, you know, might, might in some ways depict animals running or, 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 or documentaries that are made that have not exactly the sort of narrative we would like. But if you keep just doing the same thing and portraying the documentary in a way that it's just blue chip natural history all the time, you're mm. only appealing to a certain audience. And I'll, I'll give you a very good example of, of why I say, say all of this. It sounds as though I'm being a, a bit contradictory here, but my wife and I for, for 25 years ran an ecotourism business, taking people out to see sharks. And when we asked people, and a lot of these people are incredibly passionate conservationists and ambassadors for sharks in the marine world, when we asked many of them how they became interested in sharks, I was at first shocked and horrified to hear many of them, especially the slightly older generation, say through the film Jaws. Now, there couldn't have been, for me, a worse film for sharks. But what it did do is it pricked the interest of these people who now have become such strong ambassadors for them. So you, you can't always 
I always try to shoot beautiful images, depicting wildlife in a beautiful way or always representing it in a natural way. But you can't ignore the fact that essentially, for the most part, I am just preaching to the choir. You've got to have, you've got to have some, some visuals out there that also appeal to that little boy or little girl who suddenly saw you know, a shark with its mouth open chasing something and they were wildly excited about it, were drawn to looking at that image or that documentary and then suddenly started saying, hang on, you know, why is that shark doing it or why is that elephant charging that person? And then they became reformed conservationists sharing our sort of outlook. Yeah, and how how does that work in a shoot like this when it's important, for instance, uh, to get a shot of, let's say, a shark with his teeth chasing something? How do you get images like that? I'll take great white sharks as, as a as a prime example. If you look at my entire portfolio, I would say 95% of them of great white sharks swimming beautifully, or they they're flying out the water, hunting things naturally. There are very, very few of them, bar one or two, with their mouths wide open because that essentially represents only one or two or three or five percent of their lives. So if I just shot them like that, I'd be giving a skewed representation of them. But if you have a look at other pe people's portfolios of works, those images of them just with their mouths open, which are, are very easy to get, you know, represent a huge percentage of their works because they attract a huge amount of attention, just like a charging elephant. I don't think, although just by law of averages with my exposure to elephants, I've certainly been charged by them in 30-odd years of working with them, but they don't represent my work at, at all because it's not what I want to convey. But we mustn't ignore the fact that certain people do shoot things like that and they certainly, in some cases, draw an audience to looking at their work And hopefully that audience through that exposure then starts looking at things differently. I per personally choose to always try and convey the, the beauty of the animals, the unique behaviors of those animals. And that, that's what I do as a photographer. But reality says we need to look at things from, from a whole lot of different perspectives. Because ultimately, maybe a young boy being exposed to a charging elephant is better than a young boy being exposed to seeing an elephant being shot in another documentary. So, you know, it's, it's, it's comparing apples with apples. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And what are the pros and cons to this? I think you already mentioned that you connect better with an animal when you can see them up close, but are there any cons to it as well? For me, you know, getting close to the animals with a wide-angle lens really, you know, magnifies the, the, the magnificence of those animals. It also, with a wide-angle lens, allows me to bring in the, the entire ecosystem. I don't just sit with a 600-millimeter lens mounted on the side of, of um, my windowsill and just shoot full-frame portraits all day long. For me, it's to bring in the entire ecosystem. It's to create an intimate experience for my viewer where they feel that they are in that environment with the animal. And... In virtually every single photograph of mine, you'll either see that an animal has completely ignored me or it's engaged with me in a, in a manner that it's not feeling threatened or aggressive at all. It's an animal that has become very comfortable with me being there. I, I'm kind of like a, a voyeur in that animal's world for a, a short period of time. And I think 
I think that connection for people of a big, powerful image of an elephant at close quarters where you essentially feel you're right next to that elephant and the animal's not acting in a threatening way but in a beautiful way where it's just carrying on doing what it's doing is a, a very, very powerful visual that people gravitate towards and, and, and that's why I do it. And for me, it's, for me, it's a progression. You know, when you, when you first start out as a wildlife photographer, you, you're happy to take a a little snap of an animal in the bush and you've got a zebra's backside or a, a, a lion walking through a, a thicket. And then as you start progressing and your camera gear starts getting better, so you start getting buying bigger and bigger lenses and you start getting these magnificent shots of a full frame of a, of a, of a lion's face. And then so it carries on that you start understanding the animals better and you see them as not being aggressive towards humans unless they're provoked and they're not threatening. They're just beautiful creatures doing what they do naturally. And you, by extension of that, you're more comfortable being closer to them and the fact that you calm and collected, they're more comfortable being closer to you. And so you start gravitating towards trying to create these beautiful scenes that the animals are part of from being close up. So it's it's a progression and it's, it's very gratifying when you can get very close to an animal where it's chosen to come close to you, it's not being threatening, and you can get a beautiful, a beautiful image of it in its, in its environment. So it's, yeah, for me, it's a progression. I would agree entirely with Chris. Getting close is a stylistic choice as a photographer, and that's a choice that I don't usually make <laughs> because again I come from an ecology background and I just love to see things with respect in an in context of their entire ecosystem so similar to Chris you know I often use wide angles or I try to frame an animal in their wider ecosystem or in their like in the context of their ecological interactions because um, that's just a lot more interesting to me and that speaks more to me as an individual and as a as a as a photographer um and there are absolutely pros to to getting close but i guess the cons you know it's it's the safety safety of the animal as well as safety of yourself as well as the safety of the people who live in that landscape or in that community and i feel like that's something that people really quite often forget and do you uh, do you see a lot of colleagues getting super close where you wonder if it's smart? absolutely no and okay. i and i will actively speak up and tell people to back away um, <laughs> um but it's it's you know quite often especially with certain places where there's a high concentration of photographers or tourists who come to see a specific animal at what cost do we get the animal to come close it's not only are we infringing on its habitat we're making the animal uncomfortable, feel unsafe. We're no longer giving them the choice to move as they wish and behave as they wish. You know, we have to keep in mind that it's a real struggle out there in nature. I mean, every single day they could die. Every decision they make is an energetic choice, biologically speaking. You know, they, mm. it, they're expending energy. And if they are using excess un and unnecessary energy to get away from people, or if they're getting stressed, or if their heart rate is going up because of an interaction with people, that is going to have costs for them down the line. You know, if an animal is pregnant and she's really stressed and having to deal with the stresses of interacting with human beings in an unhealthy way, that's going to have ramifications on, you know, development of the fetus and how she gets resources. So we have to consider those, those issues for the, the safety of the animal, but also quite often people will bait animals 
to get close or feed animals to get close. It's a pretty significant issue and it's something that people actively do. And, you know, you're creating a unhealthy relationship with wildlife because you're, it, you know, it's a form of habituation. Especially this happens quite often with like tourism uh, companies trying to attract wildlife on a regular basis. If people are going to a certain location at a certain time at a regular basis and the animal learns to expect food and, and relates humans with food. And as soon as that, you know, relationship is compromised, as soon as the food is no longer there at a given time, the animals are more likely, you know, for example, to wander into close communities where people live. You're interacting with the animal's behavior and you're putting that animal safety at risk. And you're also putting people who have to live close by, you're putting their safety mm. at risk if that animal is a predator. And Chris, can you elaborate on that? How do you see this? Yeah, I mean, you know, from from our from from our side, unfortunately, I, I come from a environment where a lot of the animals I used to interact with before were killed, and through um, ecotourism, they now protected. So I see it slightly differently. I don't. I certainly don't see it differently in that um, what Selena says about people and photographers in, in particular pushing animals. I, I agree with her 100% on that. And I've, on a very, very regular basis, got into arguments um, <laughs> with other photographers because of that. And I think, you know, I stressed quite strongly the fact that I take a very long time to allow an animal to choose to come to me rather than just suddenly appearing on the scene, driving up to a lion and, you know, getting extremely close to it. No, that doesn't work like that. I, I sit in the privileged position that I work with these animals on a daily basis. So I have a lot more time than somebody flying in from overseas who's only got a, got a week and feels the pressure to do that. But, you know, ecotourism uh, and photo ecotourism uh, has, has huge benefits over consumptive use. And an area I can speak, you know, from experience from is obviously working with sharks. And, in the case of great white sharks, we, we were incredibly privileged that we worked at Seal Island in False Bay, which was famous for the great whites that, that hunted the Cape Fur Seals. And, you know, there, there are many detractors of uh, attracting sharks using fish. But various studies were done. I think there were, there were more, than, more, than, more than 10 different scientific studies done that showed if it was done in a way that adhered to very, very strict codes of conduct, which they are now in South Africa, they weren't always, that the sharks wouldn't become conditioned. For example, if you don't feed these animals, you know, you do your best to, to pull the baits away from them. And, you know, it was clearly shown that if it was done in the right way and it was done with a strict code of conduct, it could be done in a way that wasn't having a negative effect on them. And there was a huge... There was a huge debate around that that actually elicited those scientific studies. The point being, however, that prior to the commencement of the shark cage diving in South Africa, you were allowed to catch and kill these sharks. And it was only by tourism exposure that it actually stopped that. I think what, what, what needs to happen, however, is that people need to make the distinction uh, with you. Now you've got ecotourism operators. It doesn't mean simply because you're taking people out there, you're not killing the animals, that you can do it what the hell you like with them. What it means is that you need to still act respectfully around them. There are, in virtually 
and I, I hate to say this, but there are in virtually every single ecosystem on this planet going to tragically be human influences. And I think it needs to be managed in a way that, in a rea realistic way, in my dream world, there would be no interactions with animals other than those from a long way away. And if animals choose to come close to you, fine, say la vie. But the reality is nowadays that we, we have to interact with them in some other way. And there are far better ways of interacting with them than killing them. And photography has got a huge part to play in the way animals are seen, perceived around the world. And it is going to always be, to a certain extent, a disturbance or an alteration of an animal's behavior. And, and you know, on a, on a grander scale, where, where do we draw the line in the sand? Because when you put a, a fence around a game reserve, and a game reserve can be huge, it can be 50, in the case of the central Kalahari, 55,000 square kilometers, you know, you are already creating now an enclosed ecosystem. When you put in water holes, you're attracting an animal to a water hole. So we are altering, we are altering the behavior of animals and their movement throughout ecosystems in, in a huge way, in smaller ways. It's a very difficult place to put the line in the sand. And when you're in the field and you see an animal cowering away from you, or you see it wanting to charge you, or you you see it not coming back to a nest. I like to think that in every single one of us, there's some ethical, moral alarm bell that goes off that says what we're doing is wrong. And I'm really curious to know, animals in peril, what should photographers do? Like, how much can you intervene? Or should you help the animal? Or should you just think nature is nature and let it be? Well, I, I just want to quickly follow up on what Chris was saying, that... It's, it's true, there's no ecosystem on the planet where there is no human influence. You know, we are, I think, living in the Anthropocene, uh, which is, you know, we are, we are affecting the ecosystem on such an enormous scale that it's impossible to envisage, a, you know, a, I guess a, a part of the natural world that hasn't in some way been influenced by people, whether it's some, is something as as small or individualistic as a you know one-on-one -on -one interaction with an animal or something as big as climate change um and so i do agree that there is no there's no escaping human influence and there's no escaping human interaction and i feel like you know we are part of the ecosystem and human interactions don't always have to be bad um and i should also clarify that i i only have experience working in the terrestrial world And so Chris is definitely the, the authority on how, you know, baiting and things like that works with, with, with animals in the sea, because I have no clue how that works. I have no experience. Um, so I'm speaking mostly from experience of working with terrestrial wildlife, large mammals and birds, um, and also smaller animals like frogs and amphibians and things like that, which there are plenty of ethical issues With in terms of in macro photography and staging photographs and literally taking an animal from the ecosystem and putting oh, it in a you in catch a, it and then or yes, photographers catch it oh yeah that's like standard practice in in you know macro photography for smaller animals um, and I'm very comfortable to admit that that I you know I once did that because that's how I learned how to take photos and as soon as I realized that's not the only way and that's not 
you know, you don't have to do it that way. You know, I immediately stopped and don't use any of those photographs ever for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I do think, you know, that's, and, and, you know, for example, lots of those photographs that I did take of, of really critically endangered species of salamanders, it's a great photograph, but I'm not going to use it because I'm not comfortable presenting that. I'm not comfortable using it in a way, using something where I have hurt an individual to for my benefit. Mm. And that's essentially, you know, quite often, like what Chris was saying, when it, when every one of us, we have this internal choice. Alarm bell choice. Alarm yeah. bell, this alarm, uh, internal alarm bell. And when we see something that is wrong, it's ultimately, yes, there are implications because the, there's the power of photography for the for the species, for the world, for the awareness. But there's also, you know... I am benefiting from this photograph and am I going to be comfortable benefiting from that? Yeah, that's so interesting. I do recognize that as well, how you kind of learn throughout the years, right? Yeah, absolutely. When you when you look back at the first images and you realize, oh yeah, um, yeah. at that time it already didn't feel right, um, but I didn't know better. Exactly. Um, or it felt like there was a purpose. And now you look back at these images thinking, yeah. hmm, no, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And it's also like, I'm not going to ignore the fact that I was, like, I started out when I was 17 and I'm 22 now. So I was, it's when I was starting out, I, I was also only always working with men and mm. feeling very much, you know, out of my comfort zone. And yeah quite often my opinion is dismissed. So when, you know, in the beginning, as I was learning, I would say, like, I'm not comfortable doing certain things. It's, oh, but this is the way it's done. But whereas now, you know, I've learned to stand my ground and be more authoritative. Yeah, well done. Uh, and yeah, but that applies in all situations. And it's just, a, you know, for any young women photographers out there, it's okay to... I think the most important thing um, as a storyteller and as a journalist is to have your principles and stand 100%. by them, whether that's a, as a conservationist or whether that's in ethics. And I come across this issue of like, is the photograph worth it? Quite often with the illegal wildlife trade stuff, you know, that, that orangutan photograph, it's a horrible, it's a horrible situation. But I, and it's, you know, I'm standing there watching this animal suffer in captivity, but it's that idea. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with this photograph? And what can I do to immediately help with the situation? And that's use this photo to tell this wider story. 100%. Um, it's such a powerful image. And I think if people see this, you know, at least it'll wake a yeah. few people up. Yeah. But to um, but to get back to your question really quickly, <laughs> sorry, because I completely did a detour. Yeah. But when I see an animal in peril, um, I think it's we need to embrace like nuance because there's never really a clear right or wrong. Uh, and... I think it depends, like there are some purists, and I, you know, respect those opinions that we should never interact with the environment, shouldn't intervene under any circumstances. But, you know, again, it's like, I think we've seen ourselves as separate mm. and apart from nature for far too long. And I don't think we can clear, like draw this really clear, almost clinical line of like the human and the non-human, um, because we're part of the ecosystem and we are having an impact on their lives just by being there, but also by consuming and living in the society that we live in. Have you ever wanted to intervene yourself? Yes, yes, and I chose not to. But I can, I can, so there's, I, I take like an ecological approach. So it's who will benefit from the death, if, uh, not necessarily a death. 
I'm thinking more like predator-prey interactions, but there are situations where an animal is put in peril. Has it been put in peril because of human actions and human influences, or is it because of you know a predator-prey mm-hmm. interaction? And will that individual or will the animal that is in peril, if they do die, which you know is what you would try to prevent if you did intervene, would they be contributing to the ecosystem? And it's Um, would the, you know, would scavengers be feeding off of them or would a predator be benefiting off of it? And it's, you know, you can't interact every time you see a lion trying to hunt a zebra. That's just, that is, you know, the natural course of life. But I do think, you know, if a, if an elephant is stuck in the mud, uh, there are many situations where people will intervene. Or in my case, the one time I didn't intervene was I saw, so I, some of my favorite birds are parrots and I saw, a scarlet macaw nest and I saw a toucan going kind of hopping over towards the nest about to because toucans are omnivorous and I, I knew they were going to eat some of the chicks um and they I'm not going to intervene in that that's that's the course of nature but then the the macaw parent came in and killed the toucan so <laughs> <laughs> didn't even need to intervene but it's hard and and I there's not there's always going to be at least for me, not, not everybody, but you know, when I, I have seen, I've seen a pride of lions hunt a giraffe, um, which was incredible, but there's always going to be this, like, oh, it's a mixed feeling because you see something magnificent die, but you also see that it's, it's also very exciting and very thrilling. And, um, yeah, you have to start to find the balance. And Chris, what is it like for you? And, do you also maybe know any examples of others where people intervened and and you maybe have an opinion about it or maybe about yourself? Did you ever intervene? Plenty of times. And I, the way I feel about this is very, very similar to Selena, but obviously, you know, I, I, I would like to say I'm a little bit older, but I'm quite a bit older. <laughs> so I've had, I've had a, a lot of exposure to these sorts of things. In fact, where my wife and I worked, we, we catalogued the world's largest database of natural predator-prey interactions with sharks feeding on seals, and we recorded over 10,400 predatory events. And through that, I developed an unbelievable respect for predator and prey. And I'm still one of those people who shouts for the prey to get away, even after seeing all of that. And I've got a huge love of predators, but I don't like seeing things die. But with the natural with natural behavior, I as much as it, it's incredibly painful and sad to watch at times, you know, I've watched wild dogs tearing baboon, live baboons apart right in front of me. I've watched many, many lion kills and all sorts of other kills. And every single time it's, it's, it's unbelievably graphic. It's unbelievably emotional. And for people who are coming to Africa and all they want to see is a lion kill when they actually do see it go down, it's, it's, it's full on. It's emotional. It's life and death. It's not the switch goes off quickly. It's struggling and bleeding and bleating and it's, it's, it's full on. And you, you can't, you can't interfere. You, you, you can't because you're altering the predator surviving and watching crocodiles catching wildebeest crossing the Mara River. You're watching these animals that are going through this unbelievable battle to get across this river, and then just as they're about to get there, a crocodile grabs him, and you like all you want to do is get in and 
get shoot that crocodile, but you, you, you cannot because that crocodile has an important ecological role to play. That crocodile has a right to, to live as well. So from a natural history point of view, no, I don't believe you should. From a point of view where there's been a human-related repercussion or, or a human-related involvement to a, a particular animal suffering, I, I don't personally have a problem getting involved, getting involved. And I'll give you an example of that. Where we worked at Seal Island in False Bay, the seals, of which are 64,000, so there are a lot of them, they would get caught up in netting. And the netting would be over them and it would start strangling them to the point where their eyes start popping out of their heads. Oh, horrible. And the, the only way that nobody would go and swim to this island because it's bloody dangerous and there are great whites around it and it's not fun crawling through 60,000 seals. It's dangerous too. <laughs> but if I didn't help that animal it was going to die a tragic, tragic, painful death because of something we did as humans to it, I don't have a problem doing that, and I did it many times. Just like in, in Zimbabwe recently, uh, they were having an unbelievably bad drought, and because in certain environments, it's an, it's a, even though it's a huge area, it's, it's still an enclosed environment. Animals can't move freely, and... Um, we made donations through our photography for them to supplement the feed of certain animals for a while. And we, we did this knowing that a lot of these animals were firstly animals that were highly threatened. Secondly, they were animals that were drawing a huge amount of tourism to the area that were keeping the neighboring communities alive through them being employed. And if they didn't employ those people, those people are going to be turning to poachers and a lot more animals would have died. So I saw no problem in, in funding that to help, to help keep those animals alive that have multiple, multiple spin-off effects. So, you know, it's, it's never an easy question because it's an emotional question, but I think at the end of the day, if it's a human-related interference, I, I think you need to look at, how, by helping that animal, am I going to negatively affect others? So, for example, let me come back to the seal story. I know when I go onto that island, there's a certain species of bird on that island that is, that is endangered. And if I frighten those seals, those seals will then stampede, and those seals will chase those birds off their nest, and then the gulls will come in and get the eggs. So every time I see one of those seals on the island, I have to very carefully weigh up where is that seal located on the island? If I get on that island, am I going to disturb it in a way that the, the negative repercussions are, are far going to outweigh the positive? And I think that all comes with experience. And I think, you know, photography also, also needs to play a part in that as well. You know, you need to take photographs of showing that seal that's got this netting around it and put it out there. It's, it's not a pretty photo, but it needs to be told. That story of what fishing is doing the unseen effects of fishing, what they're doing, or you know, what climate, what climate change mm -hmm. is doing. Are there times when your work as a conservationist and as a photographer kind of clash because you are both? No, for me, for me, the, the well-being of an animal comes before any photograph. Absolutely. And I will help an animal before I photograph it if I can do both, even better. So if I can photograph a situation and then help the animal. That's win-win. There's certain cases where I haven't been able to help that seal because it's been too close to those bank cormorants or the sea's been too rough for me to go onto that island. 
without seriously endangering, very, very seriously endangering my life. So in those cases, you know, I will always take a photograph. Um, there are times when I've been in, in Botswana, for example, and seen where animals have been trapped between fences with my wife. Mm -hmm. And this animal's got, it's going to starve to death. It's going to have the most terrible death. And, you know, you, you know by interfering, you can potentially drive that animal into jumping into that fence and getting caught in that fence. And the animal's going to probably want to kill you if you get too close to it because the animal is so stressed. But you also know that there's a pretty good chance if you if you do certain things, you'll save that animal. So, you know, at, at a time like that, you, you you take a photograph, but then you 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 do what's what's necessary thereafter. I always think you if you can. You, I always think if you can. We've interfered with them in so many ways, so badly. In so many cases, there's so few left that we should try and do what we can where we've interfered to try and rectify that, that balance, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, I completely agree. It's really valuable listening to Chris, and it's really fascinating to hear and learn because I agree completely that it does come with experience hmm. and learning. And like, I'm lucky enough to have studied animal behavior and to understand when an animal is stressed or understand lots of these small signals that other quite often people might not necessarily have the skills or experience to, to see. Um, but yeah, it is absolutely something that you, you learn, you learn from every experience and every interaction. And, and right. I just wanted to say that there are situations where animals are in peril and it's not necessarily like clearly human related, you know, just two examples, not from my experiences, but there's one example of Paul Micklin, who was this very well known, uh, photographer. He saw a bald eagle drowning um, and he rescued it. So he just took it out of the water and left it on the shore, uh, which I lots of people would disagree with. But I, I again, it's kind of like what Chris said. Every life, <laughs> every life counts in the end. Um, and there's a difference between intervening in certain natural history interactions and alleviating suffering. Um, and if there are if there are cases where I can step in and alleviate an animal's suffering, then then yeah, absolutely, yeah. You had another example. You said, "Oh yes, uh, that's the." I think it's quite well known. It was the BBC documentary recently with the emperor penguins, and lots of the penguins fell into this ditch and couldn't get back out. In like a snow ditch, or yes, yeah, in like because... a valley. Yes, exactly. And it wasn't a man-made valley, but it was too icy for them to come back out. And the filmmakers kind of, you know, they kind of highlighted the, the moral dilemma of the filmmakers. Oh, should we intervene? And I was there screaming at the TV, like, of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't you intervene? Because again, keep in mind, it's like, even if those penguins died in that ditch, there aren't any scavengers around on the so it wasn't on the food. antarctic ice food. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. I, I to, to that would benefit from that you know i would maybe take slightly different considerations in other situations where i knew there would be scavengers that would benefit from you know feeding off of carcasses but again it's every situation is unique and you kind of have to to make that decision and i have in certain cases but did they rescue them they did they did yeah Oh, they did. And how? Like, I think uh, they just... Them one by one? No. Or? Oh my gosh, how <laughs> wonderful would that be? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what did they do? <laughs> they just shoveled the snow in a... And created a ramp that was, like, um, 
shallow enough for the penguins to be able to walk up it because penguins are、uh. not very agile. I mean, on land, <laughs> I wouldn't say they're very agile on their feet. Although they are absolutely incredibly athletic birds in the water, I have so much respect for seabirds. Yeah, one question that's not super related, but I do want to know because you're both so invested in trying to change the world. Um, Chris, you, you're in South Africa, and Selina, you're in London, and I can imagine that there are really different issues per country, or actually per continent as well. And what are the challenges of conveying the message that you want to your audience? Is there any difference in how you go about that? Yeah, so so I'm based in London, but none of my photography, very little of my photography work, is here. I mostly specialize in the tropics. Um, but you know, as someone who is of East and Southeast Asian heritage, as someone who is mixed race, and as someone who grew up almost entirely in the West with Western culture, and as someone who cares deeply about wildlife and how lots of these issues can trace their their, I guess, demands and the roots back to to East and Southeast Asia, I found it really important for me in my work to go. And try to cover these stories about, you know, especially with the illegal wildlife trade. Try to cover these stories that are, you know, take place in East and Southeast Asia with empathy and compassion for both the animals as well as the human communities, and respect for the traditions and cultures that that are interacting with these problems. And、um, and I've learned that, you know. Finger pointing from the West, and it's almost you know it's almost it's very colonial to to finger point from the West and say look look at what you're doing and this is horrible and you have to stop this and you have to sacrifice your the well being of your citizens and your economic development in order to to you know cater to our sensibilities as environmentalists、um, when in fact lots of these Western countries did the exact same thing just a hundred years prior. Um, that that solution doesn't it doesn't work,、um, and it does it's not sustainable, and it doesn't allow for us to incorporate the voices of those that are working in those countries, are from those countries, and represent those communities.、Um, so I find that making sure that we approach these issues with empathy for people and for wildlife,、uh, and allowing for more, you know, it, it allows people to to remain more open.、Um, And more introspective rather than defensive about these issues, and you know it's also really important for me personally as someone who kind of does you know I have a foot in both worlds, and I know how it feels. I know how it feels to be on this the Western side and think you know, but this is biodiversity. This is biodiversity at stake, and and this is the world at stake, and our future as. A species on this planet at stake, really, ultimately, in many cases. But then I also know how it feels to,、um, you know, to feel criticized and to feel generalized as an entire race. And you know, especially with COVID, the amount of anti-Asian racism that I have experienced、uh, that pertains in some way to wildlife and people, people, you know, associating the consumption of wildlife with with COVID and with you know East Asian people. It's just. That's just no way to approach a problem, and no, it, it never works that way. No, exactly. It creates an us and them, and if we can't extend empathy and compassion to other communities of people, 
on this planet? How on earth are we going to do it for wildlife yes. and biodiversity? So what would be the right way to educate them? Uh, sorry, I don't really like the word educate in this kind of sentence, but how do you get it across in a better way? Yeah, um, I think it's just, I mean, photography is a fantastic medium for that. And what I like to do with my photography is I like for it to ask questions rather than provide answers. Um, so similar to that orangutan photo, it's not necessary. And it doesn't, it doesn't provide an immediate villain in the photo, which quite often people do. Quite often people will incorporate the person and quite, you know, in many cases, because these issues take place in countries that are predominantly, you know, people of color, they will vilify a person or a community of, uh, from that, from that, you know, region. And I don't think that works because it sends the wrong message and it's not this, it's not a positive uh, thing and it's also just too easy to give people a, an answer and it and we all we all really want a good and bad we want you know this these solutions pushed towards us of this is good this is bad this is wrong this is right like it's never that easy we always have to remain nuanced and I think photography is a really powerful tool to embrace that nuance and ask questions Chris, can you elaborate on this as well? I'm guessing you might have some similar experiences or of not wanting to push your view uh, onto someone. No, absolutely. I mean, just uh, Selena and I were chatting a little bit earlier and you know, I mentioned just hearing what, what she said about um, the stigma attached to people from the East and are they so much to blame for, for what's happening, you know, in places like Africa. And, and undoubtedly, in, in some cases, the shoe does fit. Mm -hmm. So don't get, don't get me wrong there. But in many, in many cases, you know, I think a lot of people in the East haven't had the same exposure to um, African wildlife like a lot of people in the, in the West have had. And I think there are a huge amount of people in the East that are trying incredibly hard to conserve things. And I think there a, a lot of people there that love and care for wildlife just as, as much as anybody else on this planet does. And, you know, we were at a conference of all the South African safari industry leaders and, and photographers about two or three years ago, and we were going on about rhino poaching in Africa and the rhino horns are all going to the east, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the talk, a, a young lady stood up in tears and she said, you know, people from our country in many cases don't know that unbelievably these rhinos are dying to satisfy the demand in some cases they've been led to believe that the horns fall off the rhinos and people go around and collect them just as you know certain animals certain animals may may shed at certain times of the year uh, and and things like that and it was just such a graphic illustration of how something really simple that we take for granted having constant exposure to being with wildlife all the time can be misconstrued and misinterpreted and, and portrayed in a, in a way overseas that's completely different to what we believe. And, and organizations such as WildAid that campaigns incredibly heavily in the, the East, you know, has had tremendous success, not by saying, well, this is how we do things in the West and this is how you need to do things here. It's by taking very, very well-known Eastern celebrities and them going and saying to their communities, this is the effect we're having by us consuming shark fins or by using ground down rhino horn in powders. 
and that in many cases this has been seen to have no known effect in terms of having a medicinal value. And, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just how the message is, is conveyed because ex exactly as you both said, nobody likes finger-pointing. And we in the, in the Western world countries, you know, have done unbelievable damage. You know, the colonial footprint on Africa has probably done more in terms of damage to mm. wildlife resources than, than any others. I mean, not 120 years ago, people would go, not 100 kilometers from where I'm sitting today, would go and shoot thousands and thousands of animals for sport every day. That wasn't the traditional people, and that wasn't the people that were coming from the East. Those were colonial people. The time has come, however, to stop pointing fingers at anybody. We all need, as one world, one voice to stand up and say, you know what? We need to actually all make a difference together. We need to be responsible for our choices. We need to be more um, accepting of the fact that we're not the only species on this planet, and all the others have got a, as much right to be here. Well, Selena and Chris, I think we should wrap up. Do you want to add uh, a last remark? Can I just add just a really quick, yeah, just a last remark. Um, so I think what Chris has described in Africa, it can be applied everywhere and it kind of speaks to this, this never-ending battle that we, we all have to face of, you know, of economic development uh, being at odds with sustainability and environmentalism because it is in the end this this consumerism and capitalist colonized framework that kind of got us into this mess in the first place is the idea this construct that we can have infinite growth and consumption on a finite planet um, and one of the best solutions for the climate crisis for the ecological and biodiversity crisis and for that as well and also for for human development is the education and empowerment of women and girls worldwide. Because as women and girls stay in school and stay in university and have more rights, they uh, they're you know they have they have fewer children and later in life, and they have more agency over their bodies and their decisions and their and their positive effects on their own communities and more. And so, like so often, time and time and time again, we see that as we empower and educate girls and women across the planet, the, the environment and the communities that they exist in benefit just as much um, alongside them. So that's what I want to finish on. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for, uh, yeah, for all that you've shared. And I think we could have made a five-hour episode because it's so interesting listening to both of you. And thank you so thank you. much for your time and good luck with all you do uh, with your beautiful work and your beautiful images. Thank you very much, Ilvi and uh, Selena. You know, it's, it's just so fantastic hearing a young person speak like you do uh, from your heart and also, you know, your intellectual capacity to, to put the building blocks forward of, of real solutions is, is really fantastic. And um, yeah, I so wish you many, many happy hours in the field and I really hope that You'll, you'll be at the top of a political <laughs> echelon one day where you can really implement those things. Oh, thank night. you so much, Chris. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. I really, please stay in touch, please. I will do. Thank you. And to everyone at home listening, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate and subscribe in the episodes listing. If you have any thoughts or feedback on today's episode or the podcast as a whole, why not reach out to us on social media? 
You'll find our details in the description below. We'd love to hear from you.